Hello there and welcome to Typhoon Talks. My name is Michael Grady. I am a consultant here with the firm. I'm here with David Powell, our Asia-Pacific CEO and another uh, management consultant, Chen Yang. Uh, Hello. Hello. <laughs> Glad to be here. Mm, glad to have you guys. Just a little bit about Typhoon in general. Uh, we are a Hong Kong-based management consultancy providing strategy and transformation to clients globally. And one of our ideas with this podcast was essentially just to record the, the conversations that our consultants and executives are having in the office, you know, about topical, you know, business trends and, and some of the work that we do uh, with our clients day in and day out. So uh, today the, the topic of the podcast is going to be something David is very uh, passionate about, and that is how we identify as consultants and as um, trend followers and as, you know, decision-making executives or consultants, how we identify source, sources of friction within business and within organizations and within, you know, broader consumerism, how we identify sources of friction and how we remove them. So for me, friction is anything that stops anything that happens smoothly. Uh, so, uh, you know, a good example, I'm sure everybody has come across in everybody's in their daily lives is going to meetings. Um, one of my sources of frustration is being invited to meetings that have no purpose, have too many people, and you have meetings to decide what the next meeting is going to be about, so you then defer making decisions. So for me, um, you know, a meeting is a, is a good example of, of organisational friction, um, and one that uh, you know, I think everybody would wish that uh, um, they could reduce the amount of time that they, they spend sitting just talking or maybe just sending emails on their phones uh, because that seems to be what most people do whilst they're, they're in meetings. Yeah, uh, I, I absolutely agree with all that. Um, but would you say that the, the problem is the, the greater sort of meeting organization or is it engagement in meetings? So I, I, The way I see it is that um, friction can come from either engagement in meetings, actually being, you know, in the moment and listening to what's going on, as, you know, a lot of times we'll see um, some organizations will invite uh, extraneous members or executives that might not have something to contribute, and does that take away from the, the greater, um, you know, productivity or efficiency, whatever the word is, of the of the meeting, or is it more of just frequency? Is there too, me too many meetings in general, like you said at the beginning? Are there, um, you know, meetings to, to plan the next meetings? Or is it a combination of the, the two? I, I think it's I think it's a combination of the two. I, I think first of all, an organisation has to decide what meetings it needs to govern itself, mm. um, and it should keep those to the absolutely the bare minimum. There should be very clear rules about you know, what a a meeting is, um, and that you should be able to walk out if the meeting hasn't started on time. Um, because again, that's a, a great waste of time. Um, if you've got a number of people sitting in a meeting and somebody doesn't turn up for 15 minutes, then you've effectively wasted 15 minutes for everybody. So it can add up into um, you know a, a large number of hours. Uh, and then secondly, to I think you're absolutely right about sort of the the numbers of people. Um, to my mind, you should only be in a meeting if you can contribute. You shouldn't mm -hmm. be there to listen. You have a role and responsibility in that meeting. If you can't identify what role and responsibility you have in that meeting, you probably shouldn't be there. Uh, and, and you often see that you know organizations have meetings on a Monday morning. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just out of habit. Mm -hmm. That isn't necessarily because they're going to make any decisions. It's because, we, well, why do you have a meeting on a Monday morning? 
oh well because we always have a meeting on a Monday morning yes but what do you what do, do we actually talk about yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly so I think you know, a lot of organizations tend to do things from a ritual perspective or habit perspective and you know I certainly see this you know, when I'm working with clients um, is that often um, you know we spend way too much time talking about doing stuff than actually going about doing it so for, for me um, you know, meetings are a source of friction and also another thing with meetings is why are they always an hour or hour, you know, is <laughs> that just, that's just a construct right um, I once did a work with did some work with an organization where um, they had colored timers um, so and you could only book a meeting for 30 minutes mm. uh, and then the, the, the time was green at 30 minutes and then as you are closer to um, to, to, the, to the end of the 30 minutes then the, the time would go red and then there would be an alarm bell would go off uh, when it was time to finish so it, it was very very visual so you could s- there was a lot of pressure being put on you um, in order to make sure you kept to, to, to that timing that doesn't remove the, the, the issue about whether there was a point in having that meeting but at least they were looking at it in terms of you know, only spend half an hour in a meeting rather, rather than an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, yeah, another thing sense, is like absolutely. have everybody standing up. You know, everybody yeah. who's sitting <laughs> down in the meeting is feel comfortable. Yeah. It's like I'll have a cup of coffee. You know, I can check my emails. It's like I'm just sitting down. Um, mm-hmm. This is great. I think another one is stand up um, because people feel less comfortable than when they're sitting down. If you're sitting down not engaged in the meeting, that's just a waste of, of everybody's time. So, and that's just one example, you know, just, just a meeting. And I, it, but it's one that I'm sure that, you know, if we could all start off with a blank calendar and then yeah. put into uh, uh, our calendars the, uh, the time that was really going to be fruitfully spent. Yeah, that's so. what I was just going to bring up is it's definitely quantifiable, the, 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 time, the amount of time you would save just on a meeting-to-meeting basis at a massive organization. Um, one of the things I'd like to, to highlight as well is I think that um, on the flip side of a couple of your points, the meetings that drag on too much because it's an hour block, um, a lot of times we'll say, oh, well, we have until five, so let's just sit here and twiddle our, twiddle our thumbs, even though the real meaningful conversation ended 20 minutes ago. Yeah. It should just be, okay, everybody get out and go go you know it's start like your work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it shouldn't be this kind of thing where we uh, a lot of organizations might feel like, and maybe that's... Um, a byproduct of sort of productivity in general is that um, people look at a meeting maybe or the last 20 minutes is a time to just sit and twiddle their thumbs. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Chen. It's not only not about yet. meetings. If you look at uh, the daily work, it's always eight hours yeah. by rule. So why do you have to sit in the office? Although you have done all your work, why can you mm-hmm. not leave early? So yeah. people just set these things because that's the rule. They didn't think mm-hmm. about it, but they, didn't, they don't like it. I agree. I th- I'm a big one for, you know, you work as hard as you need to work. But that means yeah. that, you know, if you've done your work in six hours, go and take mm-hmm. a couple of hours off. I mean, this is something that I think we, we try and do, or certainly from a typhoon perspective, given that we're a relatively young organization, this is something we should be able to do is, um, is do things slightly differently. We shouldn't, shouldn't just conform to stereotypes. So I always take the view with, with consultants is, you know, you, there's plenty of times when you're going to be working really late at night and um, you know, maybe even at weekends. So if that means that you just want to, you know, you don't have anything else on that day, take a half day. I don't care. We don't keep track of, of, of annual vacation in, in the organization precisely for that reason because you know, we'll, we'll get the work done. As long as we set targets in the organization and we drive towards achieving those targets, 
I'm pretty flexible in terms of how we go about doing that. I think just doing something because that's the way organizations have always done it before mm -hmm. um, just sets you up to just repeat everybody else's failures. Yeah, so uh, you just describe uh, an ideal scenario uh, where we don't need to sit in the office for eight hours or we don't need to sit in a meeting for one hour. Um, but what do you think is the main reason that this um, is still the case? Why, why we still have to do meetings, tedious meetings every, every time? Is it anything to do with the hierarchy or the de decision-making process? I think it probably is, and a Monday morning is is a meeting is a good example. It's when you know a manager will get his direct reports together, and they'll go through you know you know ideally what you'd be doing is like what we what we did last week, you know what happened, you know what do we need to learn, um, and what are we going to do this week, and how do we take what we learned from last week forward into that. But generally on a Monday morning, people are coming in late because oh it's a you know Monday morning and I wasn't ready or. I, you know, forgot some things, had to go home and get it, or, you know, people are talking about the, what happened on in sports at the weekend. So Monday morning meetings are terrible because there's always a lead-in to, towards that. Um, so I, I think part of it is that, you know, managers tend to put meetings in, in their direct reports diaries because that is the way that they think they're managing, but actually they're not managing. They're having an open-ended conversation. If it, I mean, most, you know, the other thing I would say about meetings is how many meetings do you go into where there's a, a formal set agenda um, that you recap any actions in the previous meeting? Um, uh, generally, that isn't the case. That's how a meeting Absolutely should be agreed, run. Yeah. Uh, and then you should be, you don't want to put in too much um, bureaucracy, so you don't want to spend too much time writing when it's said, but you want to have something that keeps it on topic that you're very clear about who's owning which items, and then that will make the meeting more efficient. If it just starts off as being a, an unstructured conversation, um, then that's when we're going to get into trouble. That's when the friction comes back. Right. right. So there are a lot of new technologies that try to solve or disrupt the way people work. Um, for instance, we know Slack. Yeah. Um, what do you think of this kind of new technologies? Do you think they help reduce the friction? I, I think there's always a novelty value in them. Um, and we use a number of those technologies here at Typhoon. So, for example, we use Trello. Um, and I think the challenge for, for us in using new technologies is to make sure we're, we're using them and they're fit for, pur fit for our purpose. Um, we haven't used Slack in Typhoon. We evaluated it last year um, when we were looking at whether we should use that, whether we should use you know, what's available within Office 365. The thing I think with, with Slack is, is, is that, or by concern about Slack, is that it's just going to replace email. And that what we'll end up by doing in two or three years' time is complaining about the amount of time that people spend on Slack. And so what we'll do is we'll move that, the lack of productivity, which Slack is trying to solve, onto Slack. And everybody complains at the moment about email, so they're trying to find those substitutes for email. I just think we're just going to move that that inefficiency, that lack of productivity, we're going to move that problem onto a new tool. I don't think any of these tools that I've seen so far um, offer you know, a silver bullet to um, the problems of, uh, of, of lack of productivity. We can always right. be unproductive mm -hmm. on any um, tool that we decide to use. Yeah, yeah it, it's funny we bring up Slack. It's actually very topical. They just raised, uh, I think, $250 million at a $5 billion valuation from 
um, finally under the, the scope of the infamous SoftBank. Um, but one of the questions I have specifically about Slack is Slack is extremely popular in Silicon Valley. And one of the things that we've discussed before is, and I'd like to get David's thoughts on this, is what is it? Is it? Do you think Slack is more? Because it seems like a lot of the people that we talk to either use, you know, Teams. Or it, it hasn't, you know, caught as much of a blanket uh, utilization as it has in certain clusters of areas. And obviously, Silicon Valley is the, the gold standard for, mm-hmm. you know, um, as high up in the in the in the tech industries you can go. So obviously, they they must know something, right? Um, but do you think it's, I think it's a little bit more network effects almost, is that because everybody else uses it, everybody else uses it too? And I think that's a challenge because yeah. in, in, you know, they will talk to their investors about the benefits of network effect. Um, and you're obviously going to say that, um, as an organization that relies on network effect, because that's how you generate valuation, because you mm. can directly attribute the, the, the more it becomes more useful as a platform, the more users you've got. So you've got a you know use of Silicon Valley metrics of daily active users, etc. Yeah, it's very interesting. To, yeah, to, looking to at it from almost the Slack pitch perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think if you look at it from a user perspective, um, then I think that you know that the more nodes or more points you you, you put onto the network, you also breed latency. So you slow things down as well. So the, the fastest way for me to, 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 to go between point A and point B is, is, is a straight line. And when you've only got a few, few people on, 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 a, on a tour, then it becomes very, very quick because you've got direct point-to-point access. I think when you've got a, in, a, in a, any organization you know, with, with email, you, you know, if you've got a global address list which has got 20,000 people, you've, you've got to find the right person to send things so you can spend sort of 10 minutes, sort of just creating who you're sending the email to. So I, th- I think there comes a point in, in any um, model or any system where things end up by, by slowing down. Um, and my concern around not just Slack, but everything um, is, uh, is that it will grow to a size that an organization will, will then water it down to become, it'll become you know, more bureaucratic. You know, people say about, you know, what's the worst thing that happened to Skype? It got bought by Microsoft. Same kind of thing. It took a really good product and Microsoft messed it up. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, same thing with Yammer as well. It's like you, you had a really good standalone tool and then it became integrated within a much yeah, larger Inherently harder to use. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, I, I, you know, I don't want to sort of pour too much cold water on, 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 on Slack, but it's just more of a, a, a general view that I think and my view is that you know, as you put these these tools into organisations, the organisations generally impose their lack of productivity on the tools, so that the the original purpose of that tool is is lost. Yeah. So um, you just talk a bit about organisational friction, uh, frictions in organisations. So apart from that, what else do you see um, frictions exist? So, you know, organizational hierarchy, so spans yeah. of control. So if you you know look at, you know, if you were to ask you know a clerical worker in any large organization, um, you know, basically who the CEO was, um, they probably wouldn't be able to tell you. If they're <laughs> only they're only concerned about who their direct report is, and maybe sort of two above them, one or two above that. 
and that slows things down. So if you you know you go to an organisation and everybody every every organisation has a hierarchy of authority in terms of whether that be financial authority or decision making authority or whatever it is, and so if you've got somebody who needs to make a decision and that decision has a financial value attached to it, they've got to get that decision all the way up to, or they've got to get the information all the way up to the person who needs to make that decision, who has the authority to sign that off. Um, and you find that that then um, is, uh, is something that slows the organisations uh, down a lot. I think Southwest Airlines empowers all its employees to make decisions up to a certain amount, I can't remember the value, but up to a certain amount so that they can resolve situations that they come into with customers. So they don't have to uh, put that up the hi organizational hierarchy and hopefully get something at some point and anybody who's dealt with the customer service part, uh, department of an organization will, 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 will know what this means. It's, it'll take, it'll take you know, months and months and months to get a resolution. What you want to do is try and empower as many people as possible to make decisions um, that they can influence and have a positive impact on the customer um, as quickly as possible. And I think you know, a cha one of the challenges of having a large organisation and multiple layers of hierarchy is you get managers managing managers, which is why when organisations go through restructuring, it's always the middle managers get taken out. So there's a cost implication, but also there's a speed of decision making. And when, when organisations have gone through that restructuring, they suddenly find that they can make decisions much, much more quickly because they've taken out layers of bureaucracy, which is really just stifling the decision-making process. Uh, you know, we, Typhoon, you know, hopefully you guys working in the firm, you feel empowered in order to, to make decisions um, within the organisation. That's part of you know what we do is in, in terms of employing uh, you know, adults um, is that you know everybody is, is a smart person. Everybody understands how the business operates and, and can make a, a decision. Um, that's within their sphere of control. Um, I think too many organisations are concerned about, they don't think they, they uh, um, employ adults and it's about controlling yeah, things. and those spheres of control kind yeah, of exactly. overlap in each other yeah, and that's exactly. how everything yeah, slows down. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But when um, a company becomes too flat, there will be new frictions. For instance, it, I mean, democracy inside of the company might not be a good thing because not everyone is knows the business as well as the decision maker, yeah. the top decision maker, mm -hmm. so they might point, reach yeah. the wrong decision in the end. So, uh, I, I, think that's very, I think that's true, um, and you know, they, if you have a totally flat organisation, it'll be utter chaos. So you do need to have, um, you, know, a, you know, whether it's processes or organisational structure to help control the organisation. I think the most important thing is that you empower people to make decisions that they, around areas that they can control. Um, one of the things that uh, a firm I used to work for, uh, its ethos was it had it had three values, and as long the CEO um, used to say that as long as somebody could demonstrate that they'd made a decision with in line with those three values, he'd never fire them. If they made a decision that you know backfired and it hadn't been made um, with reference to those three values, then he said I will you know potentially fire them. But it, Interesting, yeah. But you know, and there were you know financial limits as part as part of that. But those three values were very very good, um, and I think it's something similar to that that most organisations should say is, is that within a set of parameters, 
you should be free to act. I think you then get better employees because people, employees, feel as though they are empowered, they're less constrained, as if you're always having to go and ask permission to do something. You generally then stop asking for permission and you don't actually do what needs to be done because you're just... From a confidence perspective. You think yeah. it's yeah. either going to get turned down, so why should, mm -hmm. why should I ask? Whether if you know that you can just go off and, 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 and do something and you're empowered to do it, more, more chances than not, you're actually going to go away and do it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling circle. I definitely see that to where, you know, you get that within your sphere of control, you can act on your own judgment, and then you make a couple of good decisions, and it reinforces them to do it again the next time. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, there, there are an inherent, a few different problems that arise in a different, you know, firms different sizes, obviously. And I think that, that that's it, a given, it, yeah. it depends on the type of organization. As I said, from a consulting perspective, you know, we hire smart people, uh, we hire people, you know, we spend a lot of time hiring people who have a strong cultural fit w with us and are going to fit are going to fit in. So therefore, we should reciprocate that and provide them with trust. Um, I think one of the, the the challenges you've got is if you work in an organisation which needs a command and control structure, like the military, for example, um, then you're not going to want to say to people, right, um, you know, battlefield, go and do whatever you want. Yeah. You've got standard, op yeah. you know, standard yeah. operating yeah. procedures to govern. People's lives are aligned. Yeah. Exactly. So we're not kind of in that space. You want you want a pilot to you know basically go through his pre pre landing checklist. You don't yeah. want him to go. Oh, I'm feeling pretty confident about it today. I won't do the checklist. Yeah. Um, so there are certain things where you need to follow specific uh, procedures. And those are, those are put in place for a very good reason. But I think uh, you know if you've got a dynamic organisation, then you should have a structure that mm -hmm. should fit. Yeah, that it's more setting them up for success. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But in, Giving them the tools. In in Asian companies people employees tend not to say anything in the meeting they're they they're not used to get involved in the decision making process so do you think this also applies to asian companies uh, yeah it does and i've been in plenty of, of of meetings where well firstly i've been in plenty of meetings where i've been the only english speaker okay which i then feel very guilty about because i'm making everybody else speak english rather than you know, <laughs> okay. cantonese um but yes i mean that then it, it's People will speak mm. only if their their boss tells them that it's okay to speak. Yeah. But I think in those situations you have to respect the cultural tradition. That's not wrong. It's just it's just different. Um, and you know, I found when I first came to Hong Kong, I had to um, change my 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 way of working so that when I was asking people mm. in a, a meeting, I didn't ask them directly. I asked their boss so that All right, I then yeah. got the boss to ask the question of the person who needed to provide the answer. So it's just different. And they, you know, going back to what we were talking about originally about meetings, those people needed to be in the meeting because they, they knew the answers. Um, it's just a different and slightly longer way of getting to that answer. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily call it friction as long as you understand the way that it needs to get done. It may be um, slightly slower than it would be in the West, but it's, it's not too much slower. So do you see fewer frictions in Asian companies than Western ones? Uh, no, I think there's, I think, uh, uh, from an organisational perspective, I think there's, there's, there's more because people um, tend to ask permission more. There's a, there's a respect yeah. for the hierarchy a lot more than there is in, in, in Western organisations. Um, and I think that does slow um, decision making down. Uh, if you look at 
you know, Japanese and Korean organizations, mm. for example, then they have you know, very, very, very strong structures. Yeah. And you have to operate within a, in a certain way. But in return for that, you have job security. Yeah. So it's Absolutely. it's very very unlikely that you'll get fired. You just become mm-hmm. a salary man, you work your way up, and you get paid a certain amount more depending on how long you've been in your role. Um, it's not as much risk risk taking. Yeah, I- exactly. But it's a much more paternalistic mm. uh, approach. Whereas if you were to go to, you know, Anglo-Saxon organizational culture, it's much more dy- Well, I think it's much more dynamic. There may be less friction, but equally, there's much less job security in re- in return for that loyalty and different respect types of the organization. Yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah, different types, different types. I think most those organizations can be effective if you look at what happened to the um, US motor industry when when the Japanese um, went in because you know would Toyota and when went in with the um, with their lean manufacturing techniques. Um, again, removal of another source of friction. They were much much more efficient and effective than the firms in Detroit. But then the, the American firms learned from that and exported a more faster decision-making process, which is then what we've seen since about 1990. You've seen the, the Japanese economy stagnate because they have been operating in a much more restricted type way, you know, way of working than, than, than the US organizations, which have learned from the Japanese and have sort of kind of taken it one step further. Right, yeah. Very, very interesting, yeah. So that's that's all the time we have right now. Um, so we're actually going to turn this uh, this friction talk into more of a series. Um, so we're going to have David on a, a, a few different times talk about different different aspects of friction. Um, the next episode will likely be about uh, business workflow. We're going to have one about data specifically, unstructured data, and you know, toss around that that infamous big data buzzword a few times. Um, but from that, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you guys for coming. See ya.